Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. When the COVID-19 vaccine was first released, it was unclear whether or not pregnant women or those trying to conceive should get it. It wasn't tested on pregnant women. The months leading up to my eligibility for the vaccine, I kept debating whether or not to get it as we are trying to conceive. Could it affect my fertility? Would it be safe for the development of my baby if I was pregnant when I got the shot? I found thousands of women had the same questions when I asked my followers on Instagram for their thoughts on the matter. I figured that given my platform reaches so many women in their 20s and 30s, I could conduct interviews with doctors that could help women make the best decision for them. It's important for me to point out that the vast majority of doctors now recommend the vaccine for those pregnant and those trying to conceive. Of course, you should speak to your own doctor if you find yourself amongst this group as they can help you make the best decision for you. This podcast is for people still on the fence and wanting to continue to educate themselves on the vaccine before deciding whether or not to get it. I wanted to show different perspectives and opinions on the vaccine. That being said, I want to reiterate that the vast majority of doctors do recommend it. I hope these interviews give you clarity. I was able to make a confident decision after speaking with these doctors. I've ordered the interviews in this podcast in the same order that I conducted the interviews. And I think it's important that if you begin listening to this podcast, that you listen to it all the way through as questions arise and are answered throughout. First up is Dr. Shannon Clark. She's a double board certified obstetrician and gynecologist, and she is a maternal fetal medicine specialist focusing on the care of women with maternal and or fetal complications of pregnancy. So Dr. Clark, can you please explain the basics of these vaccines? There's the mRNA vaccines, mm-hmm. which are the Pfizer and the Moderna, and mm-hmm. then the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are different. Are they more traditional vaccines? I wouldn't say they're necessarily traditional. They, the technology has been around longer. But basically the whole purpose of vaccines for COVID, we're talking about COVID, is to cause our bodies to recognize whatever the, the vaccines are wanting us to recognize. In this case, for both the mRNA and the viral vector vaccine, which is the adenovirus vaccine, um, it's the spike protein component of the virus. So basically both the mRNA vaccines and the adenovirus vaccine, once injected to our body, causes our host cells or the cells within our body to make the spike protein from the, from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is considered an antigen, if you will, or a foreign subject or body in our, uh, foreign substance in our body. Mm-hmm. We see, we make the spike protein and then our bodies is like, yo, the spike protein is not what we have in our body. So I'm going to make antibodies against it. Okay. So then your immune system works to develop antibodies against the spike protein. So then in the future, if it ever sees the spike protein, again, it's going to attack 
by the antibodies that we have developed. So that's how both the mRNA, which are the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines work, as well as the J&J vaccine, which is the adenoviral vector or adenovirus vaccine work. Um, now, yes, mRNA vaccines are newer, meaning that we have not really heard about them, although the technology has been there because we have been studying mRNA vaccines against things like um, RSV, uh, influenza, and things like that in the past. It's just that we never... Got to the tech, got to the point where we were actually using them. Most recently, the the SAR, when the SARS hit in MERS, we were on our way to utilizing the mRNA vaccines to treat or use against those uh, the SARS and the MERS. But because it got under control so quickly or relatively quickly, we never had to finish it, if you will. So we've had the technology for the mRNA, but when compared to the adenovirus or the adenoviral vector vaccines, that technology has been around since the 1970s. Um, I don't know if I would say it's traditional. It's more old school, if you will. Maybe the same. And then um, basically that is uh, the only vaccine that we actually had that is licensed is for as against e- Ebola. That's the only one that ha- is uh, licensed against uh, or using the ad- adenovirus vaccine is for Ebola. Okay, so how do you respond to people who say that because the mRNA vaccines have never been used before, that we're like in a human experiment? So... I, I understand. Um, if you're not from a science background or a medical background, I, I would get how people could think that. But we've had the technology for a long time. But when you're in the middle of a global, global pandemic where tons of people are dying, you get resources pour, poured behind it, you get manpower poured behind it, you get money poured behind it, and that speed things, speeds things up, which really, really helps. We were in a situation where we had to do something very quickly. So it's not like we just started from scratch from that, that first case. We already had the technology there. With the resources poured into that, we were able to expedite that. So I understand the hesitancy or the, the doubting of it, but the truth is, is we've had the technology for a while, and we were in a global pandemic, and we had to move fast. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So some people are also saying that, like, the mRNA it doesn't change your DNA, but mm-hmm. in some way, like, changes the function of it, which can mm-hmm. sound scary. No. So you have to know about how an mRNA vaccine works. So let's talk about Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Basically, uh, you have the mRNA, which is messenger RNA. It codes for the spike protein. So they took that messenger RNA that codes for the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2, and they put it in a little lipid or fat bubble. That's what is injected into our bodies. Mm -hmm. Then our whole cells take up that messenger RNA in the cytoplasm of the cell, if you remember back in biology what this cell is, you have the nucleus of the cell and the cytoplasm, and in the cytoplasm is a bunch of things that are happening and that have a lot of functions. Well, those things in the cytoplasm are what makes the antibodies um, or, or makes the spike protein once it's injected into our bodies, okay. and it never enters the, the nucleus, and the nucleus is what houses our DNA. Okay. So one, it doesn't get into that part of our cell, so that's not true. It, it can't really, it can't get into the DNA or the nucleus of our cells. Once it's done what it needs to do as far as teaches our cells how to make the spike protein and then our antibodies respond to that, it, it's gone. It's done. Okay. So that's, that's not true. It doesn't alter our DNA. Um, so I hope that kind of squashes that myth. Okay, there's another myth that, or there's another rumor, I won't call it a myth right now yet, um, yeah. that the spike proteins can prevent the placenta from being properly yeah. formed. Okay, so let's talk about that. So basically, back when we first were getting, we got the first EUA for Pfizer, which was probably at the end of December, early January, um, this blog from something called Health and Money News came out. It wasn't even really a, an article, I would say. It was more like a blog. And basically what they were saying is that the spike protein of this, or the SARS-CoV-2 is a protein. 
-hmm. Well, there is also a protein constant cetin one that is in the trophoblast of the placenta, which is important for implantation of the placenta on the uterine wall and then the establishment of the circulation between the uterus and the placenta, which helps the pregnancy to grow. Mm -hmm. They said in that blog that the amino acid sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein was very similar to that protein, cetin-1, in the placenta. And as a result, well, if you give somebody a vaccine against the spike protein, then it's going to target the placenta protein as well. So that could lead to pregnancy loss and miscarriage. That's not true. That article has since been retracted. It's no longer, it's not even available anymore. Since then, multiple uh, articles have come out debunking that myth because the homology or the, the sameness, if you will, between the right. protein of the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 and the protein in the, in the placenta, syncetin-1, is not similar. It's not going to target. And the other thing that we have to know is that our bodies are made of proteins. So if there's a similarity in the protein between the Sprite protein and what we have in the placenta, then it's probably going to be similar to other things. So why don't we just melt on the spot? That's kind of the explanation I give. It makes no sense that it would just target these two proteins and nothing else in the body. So it's biologically what we call biologically implausible. It's not going to happen, and it does not cause miscarriage, problems with fertility, or anything like that. So let's go over and, and talk on a related note to what people yeah. are experiencing with their menstrual cycle. Yeah. Um, there are reports in the Today Show and Health Magazine, they've been talking about how women who have gotten the vaccine have been reporting heavier periods mm -hmm. and irregular cycles. Mm -hmm. so what do you think is going on there? So, yeah, I started hearing about that too. And um, let's, let's back up. So we know that COVID infection in females or in persons who can have a period, uh, it does mess with your menstrual cycle. And some people do have it for long term. Okay, we don't know if we're talking about COVID infections specifically, we don't know what it is about COVID infection that affects menstrual cycles, but we know it happens. And there have been articles published on that. So then we started giving the COVID vaccines. And I probably started hearing about this maybe mid-March. And then Lily came out with an article recently. And then I actually posted about it on my social media and I've gotten a lot of responses about it too. So I do think it is happening. We just don't know why, okay. but it makes sense that maybe something about COVID is causing this. So if it's something about COVID infection, it is, could happen with COVID, uh, uh, the vaccine as well. But what we're not seeing is that it's happening long-term. It's more of a temporary uh, alteration. And I've heard anywhere from an early period to a heavy period to a prolonged menstrual cycle to pro, uh, prolonged time between menstrual cycles. So there's no one pattern that I've seen. It's not like everybody's saying, it's causing me to bleed heavy for seven days. No, it's all over the board as far as what menstrual irregularities it's causing. So... One thing that we need to do is, you've heard of the V-Safe, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. The V-Safe was a safety monitoring system that was developed specifically for COVID. Mm -hmm. Now, it, when it comes to pregnancy, it asks you about that, and it comes to other things, you know, it asks about your symptoms, and it's not asking about your menstrual cycle. So they probably need to start doing that so we can start collecting that data. Right. Based on what we're seeing now, we're calling it, calling it anecdotal, meaning that it's just being reported. What we're seeing now on social media, it's not being formally tracked. So hopefully they're going to start doing that so we can actually get some more information about what exactly is happening. Have there been any other viruses or vaccines who, that have also caused irregularities with a cycle? There possibly, um, but nothing has been proven. Uh, from what I recall, back when the measles vaccine, that was a potential concern, but I don't think that was ever proven. So no, not that I know of and not that I've researched. So, you know, it could happen with anything. You also have to think about, we're causing an immuno or, you know, immuno reactivity, if you will, when you give a vaccine for anything. So it could affect anything like that. And, or it just be a side effect. 
there are side effects to vaccine like fever, chills, myalgias, muscle, muscle aches. It could be that with the COVID vaccine that a menstrual irregularity could be one of the side effects too. Again, you also have to look at it in the context of how many doses of the vaccine have been given. I believe Pfizer is, we're close to 97 million. Um, Moderna, we're close to 84 million. 7 million for, for Johnson & Johnson. When you look at the numbers and then what we're hearing about the menstrual irregularities, it's still going to be very um, a small number compared to how many vaccine doses have given. But with that being said, we still need to start collecting that data so that people can have a way to formally say, yes, I had menstrual irregularities, and they can start tracking that. So with Johnson & Johnson, there has been apparently just six women who've had blood clots, mm-hmm. yet the birth control pill causes way more blood clots than that. So why do you think that this is being pulled? And why is this like so alarming if we are kind of, if it's like a nothing? So we have to understand exactly what's happening with the six, six women. It, it's not just a blood clot. It is called a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is very significant. It's in the brain. Okay. Plus it's associated with low platelets or thrombocytopenia, which is another, it's the formal term for low platelets. Having something that causes a blood clot and low platelets is very unusual. Okay. It's the combination. Now, when you look at the Moderna vaccine in the trial, they had three cases of CDST or cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, but they were not associated with low platelets. Okay. So those three cases didn't trigger anything, but then you have what the J&J vaccine, you have six cases in women that have the CDST plus low platelets, which is highly unusual. And it's very, very, very rare, but they still need to take a look at that. I don't know what to make out of that. I still think in the grand scheme of things, the number is very, very small, um, but they want to do more, do their due diligence to see if there are any other cases, uh, come through whatever data we have before they make a recommendation and they're doing the right thing. And I think if anything, it shows you how robust our safety monitoring systems are that after six cases from March 19th through what was that? April 12th or something, they were on, on it. So as a physician and as a, someone who takes care of pregnant women, that made me feel very secure that they are looking at the safety data uh, and looking at what we're getting as we give these vaccines. So that's not just the sound of that first sip of morning, Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Overall, we don't, you know, people are saying it's out of an abundance of precaution, that it shouldn't have been done. you kind of on both sides of the fence. 
I'm kind of in the middle about it. I think it's always going to be fine to get more data, especially when something so rare is occurring uh, together, meaning the CVST and the low platelets. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also understand the other side is it's going to affect uh, getting people vaccinated. But, you know, they do it for a reason, and I trust the CDC and the FDA, I trust the recommendations. Why do you think it's just occurring in women? I don't know. I don't know. I That's a good question, and I, I, I don't have an answer for that. I know that I will say that based on this initial studies that they did, that women have more of the side effects or the adverse reactions to the vaccine. So 79% of women are reporting an adverse reaction, which is much lower than what males are, are, uh, are reporting. It could be that because we have, uh, it could be an autoimmune thing. It could be an uh, immunologic thing. I don't know. But I do think that's another thing they're looking at as well. Uh, why is it all women? And, but we also know that in the Moderna where the three cases were, one of them was a male. So, but that's only three cases. So, you know, I think that's probably one of the things they're looking at while they're pausing the, the vaccine administration for the J&J vaccine. Since you touched on the recording in the Be Safe, let's get mm-hmm. into that. Um, mm-hmm. So far from what you've read, mm-hmm. you think that most things are, it's just, I don't want to say, it's, there's the whole correlation versus causation. Mm-hmm. So when you're reading these, what do you think? Do you think that they're more coincidental they're called how do you say it it's varus okay so let's talk about the two things that they're most commonly hear about in the media and on social media about when you're looking at what we know about the what we're getting about safety first is going to be the v-safe program the v-safe program was developed specifically for covid okay and basically once you get the covid vaccine you're encouraged to register for v-safe no matter who you are register for v-safe and what it does is it starts sending you text messages and you click on the link and it asks you questions um, I think it's like every day for the first five days and every week and, and it keeps going out. I got my vaccine in January. I'm still getting text messages. Okay. Well, you can also report there if you became pregnant and if you have become pregnant within 30 days of the vaccine or pregnant at all, it's going to ask some of those people to register for the, the safe registry. So, so far, I think we have almost 90,000 pregnant registrants in be safe. Uh, and then almost 5,000 that are in uh, the, the formal registry. So that's one way to also collect data. Um, we can't, as the public, I can't go into V-Safe and start searching. I can't on VAERS. VAERS is called the Vaccine Adverse Response System. That was made by the CDC years ago for all vaccines. And anyone can report. You don't have to be a medical professional. You could be a citizen, someone that's got the vaccine. You can put in your own information if you've had an adverse reaction. So if you went, yeah, if you, yeah, if you go into VAERS, you can pick, there's a whole table of drop-down menus of which you can pick mm-hmm. um, of all the vaccines that are available. But if you go for COVID, which I've searched VAERS many times, um, again, it's not a study. It's just a reporting mechanism. But you can search for certain buzzwords or keywords for an adverse event. So, for example, I can say I want to look at COVID-19, uh, adverse re- event, and the k- keyword is miscarriage. And then it will pull up all the cases that have been reported where someone wrote miscarriage. Now, the downfall of that is that when I've searched it, um, the last time I searched it, I, I got 68 cases. This was last week of miscarriage. So I went into each one of those cases. Some of them are duplicates because if someone reports more than one time, it's still going to count that as another case, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then also, if they report a history of miscarriage and not a current miscarriage, it's going to pull up as a case. Yeah. So you really have to go into each one to see exactly what the, the text says about miscarriage. 
You also need to look at other, and when I'm looking at pregnancy loss, all the other things that could be referred to as pregnancy loss, stillbirth, pregnancy loss, spontaneous abortion. I put all those keywords and, you know, I look at all of that. And again, there's, there are duplicates. And then there's also cases where it says miscarriage, but the patient's still pregnant or they delivered a live baby. So you have to go in and look at each thing. I do think it's a good thing um, to have, but you have to uh, look at it correctly and you have to know how to interpret what's being said. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see, and the reason why I look at this is I see a lot on social media, there were how many stillbirths and I go and I look and I've even went and looked at the VAERS ID of some of these social media posts and they were blatantly wrong. So, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. You have to know how to research it and what, what it means before we start making uh, uh, judgments about it. But again, it's not a study. It's just a data collection tool, if you will. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So as an OBGYN, you mm-hmm. are recommending your patients to get the vaccine while pregnant mm-hmm. and while driving to conceive? So first of all, I let me back up. I'm, I'm an OBGYN, but I'm also a maternal fetal medicine specialist. So I do all high-risk pregnancies. Um, so I don't have anybody that's trying to conceive. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk later. So I'm not, none of my patients are trying to conceive, but I do educate a lot about the COVID vaccine. So this is my approach to the COVID vaccine. I've never on in in any of my education made a blanket recommendation for or against the vaccine. I think it's a case by case basis. Now you might have somebody come in. There's three categories of people. I want the vaccine. I've done my job. I know I want it. You can talk to me, but I want it good. Go get it. You're entitled to get it. It's not being withheld for pregnant and or lactating or trying to conceive individuals. Then you have the people who say, I don't want a conversation with you. I'm not getting it. There's no way, no how. Fine, don't get it. Most of the people fall into that middle category of, I don't know. I need to talk to somebody. And that's where the conversation with the obstetrical care provider, if you're pregnant, or um, your OBGYN, if you're trying to conceive, or your fertility specialist, if you're trying to conceive and going under fertility treatments, that's where that comes in. And the best approach to that is kind of what, uh, what ACOG recommends is an individual-based approach based on the disease activity of COVID in your community, what your risk is of exposure based on your social circumstance, meaning who lives in the house with you. Are they going to expose you based on what you're doing? What do you do for a living? Are you leaving the house? Do you have a job? Are you getting exposed? Then also, if you're pregnant, what we know about the increased risk of COVID infection in pregnancy And the increased risk beyond that, if you are pregnant and you have comorbidities like diabetes, obesity, anything else like that, um, then you also need to to consider, you know, what the desire is of the patient if they want it. Um, And then what we do and don't know about the safety. No, this vaccine was not studied. Any of these vaccines, the three that are available, were not studied in pregnancy. We all know that that's established. But we are getting some data through VSAFE. We are getting some data through VAERS. And we can talk about that as well. I just had this conversation with someone the other day. And that helps. I mean, we know that women who are pregnant are at increased risk of severe disease. We know that they are at increased risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes. That all has to be discussed so that they are empowered to make the best decision for them. That's where I come in. It's not my job to go in. I recommend the vaccine. No, it's my job to talk to them and have the discussion so that we can make the decision together. I can give my my opinion as a physician. They can give their opinion as the patient. And then we come somewhere in the middle and ultimately hopefully make a decision that's best for them. So in January, the a, the WHO was saying that pregnant women mm-hmm. couldn't. And then in March, they kind of flipped the switch and they said they mm-hmm. could. Is that just because there were more pregnant women injected and they did more, they just ad- monitored them more? Yeah, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know what, what the reversal was. I think um, what if I, and this is just my opinion based on what I know and me be following this the entire time, 
I think based on what the CDC, FDA, ACOG, ASRM, SMFM, and all these other uh, societies were recommending, they were kind of an outlier, and they didn't really have a reason, in my opinion, as to why they were seeing that. So I think that, I don't think that they knew something we didn't know. I don't think they were bullied into changing. I just think they kind of looked at what everybody else was saying and it had a, had a change of heart or change their minds. But I, I honestly, I don't know. I don't know what the explicit reason was why they reversed their, their stance. You know, I, I have a friend who's pregnant, she's seven months, and she said, how is it that I can't eat a turkey sandwich and yet I can get stuck with a vaccine that's been not even in existence for a year? Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that? So let's, let's say, well, we can go into the whole thing about cold cuts. You know, I, I get that. Why can I eat a turkey sandwich? It's because of listeriosis. Listen, listeriosis, women are 20 times more likely to get listeriosis than the average person. If you get listeriosis in pregnancy, the chances are you're going to have a severe react, uh, consequence of it and more likely fetal death or some kind of fetal injury. It's not good in pregnancy. Okay. So even though listeriosis is, is relatively uncommon, um, if you get it, it's the consequences are not good. Okay. That's listeriosis. Okay. But I get it. We are in a global pandemic. Our lives have been changed for a year. We have pregnant women who are at increased risk for severe infection and adverse pregnancy outcomes. Mm-hmm. If in January when the EUA came out, what, would it, what do you think would have happened if, if the FDA said pregnant and lactating individuals, individuals can't have it? You're not allowed to have it. Would that have been appropriate? That's called paternalism. They can't make that, especially when you have it. They are pregnant persons are a high-risk population. You cannot withhold the ability to make that decision for yourself. That is essentially, that would have essentially been saying that pregnant women are not capable of making that decision, so I'm going to make it for you. I'm just not going to allow you access to it. That's not the way to do it either. We still have to respect pregnant individuals and lactating individuals for their patient autonomy and their ability to make the best decision for themselves in a global pandemic when pregnant patients are being affected more severely and are at increased risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes. But again, ACOG, SMFM, none of those societies that kind of uh, put out the standards for obstetrical care said, as a physician, you need to tell your patients to get it. No one ever said that. Right. Okay. We have to empower them with the information we do have. The wrong thing would have been to not let them have access. That would not have gone, gone over well either. So, Yes, it, it, there's many reasons why we had the we allowed or we wanted it to be available as obstetricians, uh, and we're glad that the FDA made that a decision early on with the first EUA. But no one's being told they have to get it. I still think it's an individual case by case basis. Um, but if someone tells me they want the vaccine, I'm not going to talk them out of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the problems now that we're seeing is every state in the country is allowing pregnant persons to get the vaccine. But I know of many cases where pregnant individuals and lactating went to get it and they've been denied from whatever pharmacy they're going to, whatever vaccination center, and that has nothing to do with what's allowed. It's that individual center making a decision for the patient, and that's not right either. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's rumors going on in the UK that they are a little bit more cautious about mm-hmm. pregnant women getting it. Is that true, or do you feel like it's still more up to the patient? Well, I know that uh, for the U.K. and Canada have both not been uh, as open as the U.S., Mm -hmm. but that's them. Just like every state within the U.S. was allowed to make a a determination on when they would allow pregnant individuals and lactating individuals to get it, 
every country in the world is allowed to make those decisions too. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I, I tried to look up to see if there was anything that the UK knew that we didn't. There's not. Okay. The only thing that I kept seeing is there were not enough studies. Okay. We can't orphan, continue to orphan our pregnant and lactating individuals from things because there's not enough studies. Until we start doing more studies, we're going to have to do the best we can with what we got. And the best that we got right now is we're in a global pandemic, like I've said again, where pregnant individuals are getting a more severe, potentially getting a more severe disease and adverse pregnancy outcomes. And we have to allow those individuals to make that decision for themselves. We can't take that decision or that opportunity away from them. How long are these studies usually when given? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's different. And what are you talk about for vaccines? Yeah. Yeah, it's different. So most of the studies done on any therapeutic in pregnancy are, are whatever data we use to prescribe any medication are based on studies done in non-pregnant individuals and males, okay? Mm -hmm. Because they're not in those individual studies. That's not just for vaccines. That's for most things that we treat women with. So what are we supposed to do? Not treat them? Yeah. We have to treat them. Yeah. So most of the studies that are done on pregnant individuals are done after whatever therapeutic was went to, uh, was studied comes to market and it's available. Then the studies are done. Okay. Mm -hmm. And even then it's still hard to do, but we have to, the original thought was that we need to protect our pregnant and lactating individuals from research. That's not the appropriate uh, approach. It should be, we should be protecting them through research. They need to be involved in these studies so we can know how the pregnant body and lactating body respond to these therapeutics. We can't keep saying we're not going to do it. That's not the approach. Okay, so this is kind of the change, like the first change in that matter? Well, what do you mean? In the fact that, like, normally we wouldn't, in the first year of something, have pregnant women be taking it. But in this case, because of the pandemic that we're in, it's time mm -hmm. to start. Yeah, I mean, I think until, I, I mean, listen, I get, I, I always try to put my non-medical hat on. Mm -hmm. And then, look, I'm a person who went through years of fertility. Yeah. And, and I know, I always think about what if I was trying to conceive, what would I think? But there's, I'm still medically trained and I can't separate myself from that. So I can understand <laughs> if someone that's not, yeah, I try as much as I can. I, 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 I can understand as someone who's not could be scared, mm -hmm. but, and are hesitant or ask questions and ask questions, especially if you're trying to conceive pregnant or lactating, ask the questions, mm -hmm. but you still have to make the decision for yourself. Right. If anyone's telling you, get it and then walks off. I wouldn't trust them. Everyone's saying, don't get it. It doesn't talk to you about why I wouldn't trust them either. Right. You have to have the conversation based on your individual circumstance. But the good thing is that it's not that, that decision's not being taken away from you. We, we cannot do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, I, I get it. I, I've been through it all from the fertility journey and I understand. Um, but we, we're in a pandemic and until you're someone who's actually treated somebody that's pregnant, that has bad COVID, it's hard for anybody to understand that. They're just going to have to trust people like myself who have. Is there a certain time in a woman's cycle that you mm -hmm. safest for her to get the vaccine? Or does it really not matter? Yeah. So keep in mind, I, I, yeah, all yeah, my yeah, patients are pregnant, so I'm not yeah. dealing with cycles so much. Right. I know. But, you know, I know, I know. I, I, I'm up to date on ASRN, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. There's nothing that they said you need to get it in this part of your cycle. It's always been when you have the opportunity to get the vaccine, get it. Okay. There's nothing in the data that shows, um, you know, it's better to get it uh, in the luteal phase, whatever. No, we don't have that data. So if the ASRM is saying that, that's good enough for me because they're the experts. Mm -hmm. So no, the answer to your question is there's not a recommendation on a certain time within the menstrual cycle to get the vaccine. Okay. And then everybody's always told, you know, to be extra careful during that first trimester. Mm -hmm. 
So would you recommend women waiting to the second or third? Or again, do you mm-hmm. think that matters? Yeah, so no, I, uh, as far as what ACOG, SMFM, and ASRM, but mainly ACOG and SMFM had said, there's no one trimester that's better than the other. What we have to keep in mind is the purpose of the COVID vaccine is to first and foremost protect mom. So based on your risk, you may want to get it in the first trimester and not wait. If you're someone who is not at high risk of exposure, if the, uh, uh, the rate of COVID in your community is not that high, if you're able to socially distance and you're not really being around people, then you might want to wait to the second trimester. That's fine, too. That's only a decision you can make. But I know many people, especially healthcare providers, wanted it in the first trimester to protect themselves because the first reason to get the vaccine is not for baby. It's for you to protect the, the, the individual. Uh, the bonus then, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the, the whole antibodies going to baby and pregnancy and the breastfeeding. That's yeah, a bonus. Totally yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, we had to understand that anybody should be making the decision based on their protection, not what's going to be for baby. If you're not protected, it doesn't matter if the baby gets the antibodies, you know, or when they get the You have to be protected. Now, let's talk about the antibodies. We do know that women who get vaccinated or people who get vaccinated in pregnancy, antibodies have been found in the cord blood. If antibodies are found in the core blood, then the antibodies are in the baby. Antibodies largely are protective, and those are IgG. That's primarily what's passed to baby through um, the placenta in pregnancy, and we know that based on the Tdap and the influenza vaccines that we we do give in the third trimester uh, routinely in pregnancy. So that's that's a good thing. We know that the baby is getting antibodies in the core blood. Now, we don't know how long those are protective or how protective they are. We don't have that data yet. When you talk about uh, breast milk, we do know that the antibodies are found in breast milk. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have not seen any studies where they actually prick the baby and we know that the antibodies are there. But based on breastfeeding and what we know how passive immunity occurs with breastfeeding, we can assume that the babies are getting breast uh, antibodies through the best breast milk. Mm-hmm. Now, the one study that did come out, the biggest one about breast milk antibodies is if someone who's just regularly breastfeeding and we're not in a pandemic, the main antibodies that get uh, passed on to baby that are protective through passive immunity are IgA antibodies. The reason why those are unhelpful is because the gut of the baby, because it's drinking the breast milk, does not break down those IgA antibodies, and they're able to protect the baby. Okay. Now, IgG antibodies are what's done through pregnancy, through the placenta. So what they found in that study, though, is that you're getting IgA and IgG antibodies in breast milk, but the IgG antibodies were at a more robust or had a more increased response from the vaccine. We don't know much about, we're not sure whether or not the IgG antibodies are going to be as protective because it's the IgA antibodies that we want. So that question is still there. But, you know, antibodies are antibodies, and hopefully to some degree it's going to be helpful. I know this is kind of an obvious statement, but since we're seeing these period irregularities, Mm -hmm. if somebody is trying to conceive, the fact that they might their their cycle might be a little off, perhaps it isn't the best idea for them to get it if they're like really trying to get pregnant now because they might be, may not be able to break their cycle as well in ovulation mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's something to consider, but you have to consider as well um, that according to and this is how I kind of look at it. According to uh, it's a potential side effect. Not everybody's going to have it. We still have a lot of people who are conceding. Yeah, <laughs> right in between doses. Yeah, so it's not like if you get. What we need is we need more data. We need to say this side effect of menstrual irregularities occurs in this percentage of women. Right. We're not going to get that data for a while. We're not. Yeah. So you still have to understand what, again, goes back to what your risk is. Now, you may end up having the side effect of having an irregular period for a few months. It, it's, a, it's a potential. But I, in my opinion, based on the amount of doses we've had of the vaccine versus what we're hearing so far about menstrual irregularities, it's still going to be a very small number. 
and the, the benefits of the vaccine at this point in time, in my opinion, still outweigh the risk of having a, a menstrual irregularity after the vaccine. Gotcha. And mm-hmm. then my last question is kind of also an obvious statement, but we don't have, we only have births right now from women who are in their second, maybe. We only have what? We only have births right now from women who received the vaccine Mm -hmm. in their third trimester. Third or. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think this. Yeah. 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 But you don't anticipate seeing, you don't anticipate seeing any difference for with women who were vaccinated in the first trimester. Difference in what? Just, I guess, um, a difference in the uh, antibodies in the baby because they're saying that some some of these vaccines may only last ninety days. Uh, yeah. So, and I get that question too. Uh, but the, I think the reasoning is wrong because what they're thinking of: should I wait until the third trimester to get the vaccine in order to give my baby the antibodies? Yeah. We had to protect you first. Okay. We're in a pandemic. We had to protect you first with Tdap and the flu. I'm sorry, with the Tdap vaccine, the Tdap booster, which is protective, helps protect uh, the newborn from pertussis or whooping cough. Mm-hmm. We give that in the third trimester because the, that we know that the antibodies cross. And we're not giving a patient, a pregnant woman, Tdap to protect her. We're giving her to protect baby, so that's why it's in the third trimester. We're in a global pandemic. We need to protect the pregnant individual first and foremost. So that's not, I would not never tell a patient to wait. I want her protected. Want her protected until we get more data about, the, or we get the pandemic under control, and then we know. Well, you know, we need to start doing the vaccine in this trimester if we ever get there. I don't know. There's so many things we don't know, but we're still in a pandemic. We have to protect mom first and foremost. Um, and I just say when I t- tell patients about this, the antibodies potential for antibodies is just a bonus, but you have to protect yourself first. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. All right, Dr. Clark, thank you so much. This was seriously so informative. I hope I didn't talk too fast, but I tend to no. when I get excited. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Seriously, that was so helpful. You can find Dr. Clark at Babies After 35 on Instagram. Before we get our next doctor on the line, I want to talk to you guys about NoteCube. It is the cutest gift you can give someone. Jared recently gave me one of these. It's it's a box, a personalized keepsake box that you get full of all these little notes up to 60 personalized notes with all the reasons that your significant other, your child, your mother loves you and appreciates you. It was he like listed all these little cute personal things about me that a lot of them that only Jared would know. And whenever I'm having a down day, I look at these and I think like, ah, I'm so loved. It's so, so sweet. So with NoCube, it's really easy to create. You do it on their website and you select, you know, 10 to 20 of the person's best qualities. And within seconds, you'll have up to 60 personalized notes with all the reasons that you love and appreciate this person. And you also have the option to edit, add photos, and then you receive these beautifully printed notes in a keepsake box. It's unexpected. It's perfect for Father's Day coming up, anniversaries, weddings, birthdays, Valentine's. Um, And yeah, you can engrave the wooden box like Jared did with mine which I think is a very nice little added touch. It only takes a few minutes to do this. 
and it's a family-owned business. The founders are brother and sister, and we have a special offer for all you guys listening to the I Don't Get It podcast. 20% off when you use the code I Don't Get It. It's all one word, no spaces, I Don't Get It. Free delivery worldwide, and you could shop at thenotecube.com. They're easy to create, and they last a lifetime. All right, let's get back to the interviews. Next, we have Dr. Ashley Mayer with us. She considers herself to be a vaccine-neutral physician. She's a naturopathic medical doctor. Naturopathic medical doctors are licensed differently in each state. She went to medical school for four years in the state of Arizona with an option of residency. She prescribes DEA-scheduled drugs, and she is a family-practicing physician that utilizes insurance. Let's start with the very basics. Can you explain what an mRNA vaccine works and how it's different from vaccines of the past? Okay. And I think you're talking about AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. Because is it accurate to say that the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines are maybe more of a traditional take on the COVID vaccine? They are because they're what we call viral vector vaccines. Mm-hmm. And just like the childhood schedule and every other vaccine that we have, we take a live virus or a weakened or a dead, mm-hmm. and then we inject that into the body and then the cells create these what we call spike proteins. Mm-hmm. Uh, AstraZeneca, I believe, uses chimpanzee adenovirus and the Johnson & Johnson uses the uh, human adenovirus. The new ones that we're speaking of that are all of the awry is yeah. the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna. These have never been used before. It's mRNA being injected. So it's part of the gene coding and that in turn creates these spike proteins. And then you can argue that um, we've had this technology for decades and correct, we have, but mm-hmm. we haven't brought it to what we call market and utilized it on a population and especially a population of this size. So have mRNA vaccines been studied in long-term studies before? Uh, Not to my knowledge on humans. So I believe that we're doing that on animal models. And I think they were looking at that with the Ebola virus, but I don't believe there's anything been done on humans. And so the idea that Uh, it's been studied for decades. Yes, it has. A lot of these vaccines have been studied for decades, but how we don't know anything about COVID and the disease in and of itself and side effects. How do we know about these vaccines yet? If it's been around for decades, why haven't we tried it on humans yet? There just hasn't been a virus to try it on? I don't know enough about that uh, to be able to say one way or the other. I'm not a virologist. I can just look at the FDA and CDC data research that comes out and then try to form my own uh, medical opinion based upon that to be able to give that to my patients. So if you were to recommend to a patient who definitely wanted the vaccine, would you, is there one specific vaccine that you would recommend to them right now? Well, up until last week, I was potentially suggesting that let's use our technology that we know that we've been utilizing with the population for decades, which is the viral vector vaccines, Mm -hmm. because we just don't have enough data on the mRNA technology. But once the CDC and FDA are now very strongly cautioning the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine due to potential blood clot issues... um, I'm a little bit at a loss as to what to recommend. So currently I'm just 
giving the patient the information, both the risk and benefit of disease, risk and benefit of vaccine, and letting them make their own decision based off the informed consent given. And that's what I do with all vaccines. So I, I remain very neutral in that. Well, speaking of that, most most doctors are recommending the vaccine to pregnant women and those trying to conceive, saying that the benefits outweigh the risks or the side effects. What are you telling your patients? Typically what I tell patients about any vaccine. So currently the Tdap vaccine is also recommended in pregnancy as well. But if you look at the package insert of, uh, I did a post on this like back in January on the Mm -hmm. Tdap vaccine in pregnancy. If you look at the FDA package inserts, there is a little caveat under pregnancy that says we have no information to give you. We have no safety to be able to tell you whether or not this vaccine is going to be safe in pregnancy or not. And that is a big red flag. And that's because they don't usually run studies on pregnant women, correct? Correct. And they haven't in the past, but there's a growing body of researchers who are very interested in doing this, which is understandably so. Mm -hmm. However, for physicians to recommend these vaccines to be safe Mm -hmm. is unfounded because we don't have that information. So how can we tell women when they come in for a visit, hey, look, this is safe and effective in pregnancy when we have no data to back it up. And if we did have data, the FDA and the CDC would very happily put that in the package insert. When do you think we'll have data on this? Would you say in about a year once these women who are currently being vaccinated start having the children? Uh, Right. Yeah. Well, it's longitudinal. It's long term. So this is going to be ongoing. I know there was um, a study that came out just recently of a very small cohort of women uh, who were were uh, lactating and it was breastfeeding. And then I think there was also one on a small cohort with pregnancy Mm -hmm. that showed that there was antibody transfer from mother to babe. And I totally get that. And I think that's great when we're saying, hey, look, do you want to protect your babe uh, from potentially contracting COVID? Well, if you look at the mortality of infants or children regarding COVID, it's 0.03% of the population who's contracted COVID. Right. So you have to let your patients know this. Hey, look, I want to protect my baby. Okay, well, take a look at the evidence both for the vaccine, we don't have any, and then take a look at the evidence for what COVID actually does with regards to children, and then you make your own informed decision. I was talking to a doctor the other day and she was really emphasizing to her patients that it's about your safety and protecting you from COVID, not your baby. If you've ever been pregnant before, the one thing you're thinking most about is protecting your unborn child. (laughs) So if we have no information to know how this may affect the babe, why are we saying it's safe? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you tell a mother, hey, look, we want to protect you, we're, we're looking to protect you, maybe not necessarily protect your babe, they're going to look at you like you're nuts and walk out. <laughs> That's true. I guess maybe I said that wrong. She yeah. she meant don't take the vaccine in your second or third trimester with the sake of number one priority, you vaccinating your baby through you. Does that make okay. sense? Well, let's speak to that because yeah. what are they saying? You should do it in the first trimester? Well, that was another question I have to you is what trimester would you think would be safe to do this? The small study that did come out last week that showed um, that the antibodies pass and babe gets you know, these antibodies, et cetera, the very bottom part showed what the side effects are 
And so up to 45% of women who received the vaccine witnessed these side effects. And fever was one of the most common. So if you think about in your first trimester of pregnancy, uh, pregnant women who have fever risk the teratogenic effects of their newborn. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, they don't form correctly. Mm-hmm. So why would we say, oh, let's do it in the first trimester as opposed to second and third? It just, none of this really makes physiological sense to me right now as to say there's a specific trimester to vaccinate or don't do it in the second or third. Well, why the first? Because there's also potential for risk as well. If the side effects are fever, you definitely don't want to have a high fever during your first trimester. Or your second or third, but most definitely um, the risks of fever are in that first trimester. So there is this thing called V-safe. It's a V-safe registration where people who have gotten the vaccine are reporting the side effects they had. Um, There's like a whole sect for women who are pregnant and they, they basically, you know, they report what they've experienced. Have you read any of those VARES? They're called VARES, which are the reports. Like, and they can be from the patient themselves. So VARES has been around forever, um, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And I utilize that all of the time when I do vaccine consults with um, parents who are looking to vaccinate their kids. And so we do, we look at the risk benefit. We look at what's been reported. Now, these are people who are reporting their side effects. This isn't anything from studies, nothing from clinical trials. This is just people who have been vaccinated or parents who have vaccinated their kids who are saying, this is what we found. Uh And uh, what we know is that it's completely underreported. And so I can tell you just from my patients who have been vaccinated for COVID, because I have, I'll say I have like a 35, what is it, 65 ratio, 35% of my patients have gotten vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you that the vaccine reactions that have occurred for them, mostly they feel like they came down with COVID. They haven't reported that to VAERS. So what you see on VAERS, or I haven't seen the other one, Be, Be Safe. Be Safe. Okay, I haven't seen that one, but what's reported on VAERS is very much underreported. And so I have taken a look at it. Um, It's a laundry list of side effects for pretty much every vaccine. Um, And it's actually really hard to navigate that database. Uh, So a lot of parents don't try to navigate it because it gets confusing. Do you think that in in general, side effects aren't being documented properly, you don't think? They never are with vaccines, I don't believe. It's tough to actually go back to your pediatrician or it's tough to go to your physician and say, hey, look, these are the symptoms that I'm witnessing after the vaccine. Because if you came into, you know, an average physician's office and said, hey, look, I've got a fever uh, post this vaccine and body aches from uh, head to toe and I've got no, no energy and I haven't been able to get up off the couch for three days, they're going to say, oh, that's normal. That's your immune system working. It's doing its job. And I hear that all the time. And Mm -hmm. it's like, no, that's not normal. Uh, That is a vaccine reaction that needs to be reported. So that's just one example um, of of what I mean by underreporting is that we're told uh, and, and it's, you know, we're told it's all over the news. Oh, that just means that the, the vaccine's working correctly and you're mounting the correct immune response. No, that's a, that's a side effect of the vaccine because if you put 100 people together and five witness these symptoms and the other 95 don't witness any symptoms, if this was part of what the vaccine's supposed to do, all 100 
or 90% of the people would have these types of reactions if the vaccine was just doing its job. I saw a video of two guys either passing out, seizing after getting the vaccine. It didn't get any traction. However, when I talked about seizures to my dad, my dad's a doctor, and then to my friend who's a nurse, she, they, they both said that seizures are not common, but not wildly uncommon type reaction to a vaccine. And I don't Correct. think, I think that most people, if they would know this, would get freaked out. Well, that's the thing. So if you're talking about the pediatric population, which is who I, who I see, mm-hmm. uh, the MMR vaccine and the Varicella vaccine are very wildly known for febrile seizures. And that's right on the package insert is febrile seizures. Um, and, and so parents don't know this because they're not informed by their pediatrician that, hey, look, I'm getting ready to administer this MMR vaccine or this Varicella vaccine or the combo of the two together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to tell you and inform you these are the potential side effects. And if we did inform parents of both the risk versus the benefit of the vaccine, I think there would be more discussion about vaccines in general. So I'm glad that the COVID vaccine has come to light because we are talking more about it. And we're talking more about vaccine manufacturers not held liable uh, for, for these vaccines. And it's not just the COVID vaccine, it's all vaccines. So every vaccine that we have on the childhood schedule, the vaccine manufacturers have immunity to being sued in court over any type of adverse reaction. And all this being said, you say you're not an anti-vaxxer, you are vaccine neutral? I am vaccine neutral in the sense that I will give you the benefits of the vaccine the risks of the vaccine and you decide. I may, I don't think we can all be 100% completely neutral about anything. Mm -hmm. So I do have my own personal opinions, but what I emphasize to parents is like, here, here's the data. I don't give my opinions. I give the data. Generally it comes from the CDC or FDA. And I said, these are, this is what you need to take a look at. And then you decide what you think is best for your child, because we're all different. Do I believe the CDC vaccine schedule is a one size fits all? No, because nothing, no, no medicine is a one size fits all. Uh, and vaccines are considered a biologic, but no pharmaceuticals are a one-size-fits-all, do I believe, not simply just vaccines. Like you said, this one's not FDA-approved. It was under given under the emergency use authorization. Has there ever been a vaccine that's gone from the invention to being shot into millions of people's arms so quickly? No, not that I know of. I don't believe so, but I... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm. This is the first time in my life where I've witnessed a pandemic. Sure, they've happened in the past, um, but no, this is the first one that that I know of. And and here's the thing: once the FDA and the CDC have connect or collected enough data to make an informed decision whether this should be approved or not, they will. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, it still is being used under the emergency use authorization, so it is still considered an experimental vaccine. And I get it. It's not been out long enough. It generally takes years for something to get approved. And generally speaking, only a very, very small percent of vaccines or pharmaceuticals ever end up actually getting approved. Has there ever been a vaccine where it's been studied for years, the the standard amount of years, and then there's enough research on it to say that it shouldn't be given to people? 
Oh, absolutely. It happens all the time. Uh, that's part of the clinical trials process. And like I just said, a very small percentage of uh, biologics or pharmaceuticals ever actually make it to market. But we're doing research and, and government and clinical trials all the time on pharmaceuticals. And yeah, there have been some that have actually come to market and then we've pulled. So for example, the rotavirus vaccine, which is given to um, to infants, uh, that was recalled just a few years ago because it was causing intussusception. So it was causing these intussusception. So these babes' intestines pretty much turning inside out. And so that was recalled and then they reformulated and then they brought it back to market. So this happens all the time. I'm sure you've heard of Vioxx. It was a pharmaceutical that came to market and it was wildly used for a while because, oh my goodness, it worked amazing. And then that ended up getting recalled. What was the, that for? I'm sorry? What inflammation. Was that for? It was for inflammation. The DPT vaccine, that, uh, they, they took that off the market. And now they, they do a DTAP, which is the acellular. It's not the live pertussis portion. That got removed from market. Uh, the oral polio vaccine, we removed that from market. Uh, we do the IPV now, which is the inactivated polio vaccine. So it's not live. We do that here in the United States, but overseas, we still give the oral polio vaccine. And that's why currently in uh, in the world right now, there are more cases of vaccine-derived paralytic polio in comparison to wild polio cases because of the oral polio vaccine. And that's why we removed it here in the United States. When did they do that? Just thinking about what I had as a kid. You had probably the IPV. Okay. You probably did not do the oral. The oral was a couple decades. I, well, you know, I'm not quite sure. I want to say it happened in the late 80s. Early 80s. I was late 80s. I don't know. I don't know some of these statistics or some of these numbers, but I do know that currently we give the IPV, which is the inactivated form. It's that viral vector that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. So we inject either a, a live virus um, or, or a dead antigen right. that we connect to something like aluminum so the immune system sees it. So speaking of that, some people are thinking, there's a rumor, that that the mRNA vaccine will create these protein spikes, which will ha- which will prevent women from being able to form a healthy placenta. It's the it's, it's, you heard about this? Vincentin one. Yeah, I think it was, I think at first it was a German doctor who spoke to this. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it was with Pfizer. Uh, don't quote me on that by any means. But it's the it's the fact that it may not allow for the placenta to form correctly, and that's right. why there's this concern about women not being able to conceive. Yeah. We don't know. We don't have enough evidence. I'm not going to say it can't happen because yeah. uh, it seems like women have conceived since getting the vaccine. There correct. are instances. So of it's that. kind of like this, you know. If I truly believed that it was causing this, then all women wouldn't be able to conceive. But like with every vaccine, there is a cohort of people who can't take this vaccine. Mm -hmm. Not this one, but just any vaccine in general. Mm -hmm. And that's due to their genetics, their environmental factors, um, their epigenetic factors, et cetera. There are reports and like they're kind of out there. Today's show, um, Health Magazine, they talked about 
women's periods becoming irregular, whether that's just the timing of their cycle being off or their periods being heavier. So what do you think could be causing that? And do you, have you noticed at all that with COVID patients, they report the same side effects? Like so there was a study that came out of Wuhan recently, and it was a small amount of women. It was 200 and some, I think. Uh, it was, I think, tw- up to 25 or 30% of their hospital female patients witnessed menstrual changes. Yeah, I was reading about 20%. Is Yeah, it is 19 to 25. One's menstrual volume and one's mm-hmm. menstrual changes yeah. um, uh, to the length of their menstrual cycle. And I, you know, what I can say to that is, um, I don't know in general, women have reported over the past year and a half changes to their cycles, uh, in uptick. Cause there's always women that report to me that they have problems with their menstruation, but there's definitely been an uptick over the past year. And I don't know if it's the stress of COVID in general as being a pandemic We're social distancing, we're sitting at home. So stressors we do know will change our menstrual cycle in certain ways. Uh, women who've gotten the vaccine, I don't know if it's just such a stress on the body from the vaccine that's causing these menstrual changes, but there's, I'm seeing it everywhere. So it's not just, you know, a small group, you know, on Facebook who are chatting about it. Um, Dr. Aviva Ram, her Instagram page, she spoke to it as well recently. Um, And so, you know, whether it's the vaccine, whether it's the COVID disease, Mm -hmm. they both put a huge stress on the body. So, so are there menstrual changes? Correct. Um, You know, whether this has to do with, you know, trying to conceive and the placenta and, you know, menstrual changes, and we're trying to like hook them all together. You know, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, We just don't know. We don't have any information, but certainly I'm getting an uptick in my patients with menstrual changes. um, But I don't know exactly what that may be attributed to because there's several factors. Very interesting. Yeah. All right, those are those are all my questions for you. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, this has been really great. I like just having a normal conversation with someone who's not pushing <laughs> for or against, uh, just talking about the data. Um, and I guess what I'll say is that if you do really want to to learn or know more about vaccines in general, you know, ask for the or go to the FDA website and just get the package insert. And the package insert's going to tell you really everything that you want to know. It's going to give you the warnings, the precautions, side effects, post-marketing surveillance, uh, and then you can make a better informed decision about what you want to do. And you have some of those on your Insta story, right? On my Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. I have package inserts all throughout my Instagram. I have, um, they're on my website, drgreenmom.com. I composed that probably eight years ago before the whole debate on vaccines. I mean, I was just interested in them. Uh, when I was studying, it was right after medical school. I just got very interested and I wanted to know more about what the, our government bodies had to say about vaccines. And that's kind of how I got into it, but I have it. It's all over my Instagram any vaccine that you want to know about uh, is there. Any vaccine you want to know about is actually on my website as well. Okay, great. And people can find you at Green Mom. Is it at? At Dr. At Dr. Green Mom. Yeah, okay, great. And One more thing. Uh, my website is drgreenmom.com. Okay. And then there's one more person I would just love for you to gain some information on. It's at just the inserts. At just the inserts. 
Yeah. Have you taken a look at there? I think it's a physician who does this and it's literally only the package inserts. Very interesting. I'll check that out. Yeah, it's really cool. But hey, I appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Normal talk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I really, really appreciate you saying that. You can find Dr. Mayer on Instagram at at Dr. Green Mom. Dr. Jess Petros is our next guest. She is currently trying to conceive herself. She's a previously board-certified internal medicine hospitalist turned Gerson practitioner and functional medicine specialist. Gerson therapy is a natural treatment that activates the body's ability to heal itself through an organic, plant-based diet, raw juices, coffee enemas, and natural supplements. But before we get her on, I want to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. If you are a listener, a regular listener of the I Don't Get It podcast, you know that we love this service. BetterHelp is professional therapy. They're licensed therapists that you can connect with in a safe, private, online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. And you can message your counselor anytime. You'll get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone chats without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Um, What we love is that they provide therapy in a whole range of issues, including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, LGBT matters, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and they have their service available for clients worldwide. And it's way more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. We love it because it is convenient, professional, affordable. And um, they have been so popular. There have been so many people seeking therapy through BetterHelp that they're actually recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So we want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener of the I Don't Get It podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash get it. So join over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. So go to betterhelp.com. That is betterhelp.com slash get it. All right, let's get our doctor on. First off, can you introduce yourself? I know that you were an an internist. Um, You were a board certified internist and then you kind of switched over. Exactly. Yes, you got that exactly right. So it seems like a a different life now, but in a past life, I trained um, at the University of Louisville in internal medicine and graduated, went through residency, took my boards, was board certified, worked in a hospital as what's known as a hospitalist for six, almost seven years, um, and really believed everything that they I learned in school, everything that we were taught in continuing medical education and in the hospital until at about the six, seven year mark, there started to be cracks in the system for me. Um, and I really started to notice what they were feeding people in hospitals and how long people were on the medications when they came into the hospital, mm-hmm. sometimes being discharged on 50 different ones. And it really started to not be aligned with medicine I could believe in. And eventually it became so much for me that I was really unhappy in my job and I didn't feel like I was really helping people. So I quit and I got trained in functional medicine and ozone and, um, 
nutrigenomics and a number of Gerson therapy, a number of different holistic and integrative modalities. Okay. Very interesting. So you've had a lot to say on your Instagram, <laughs> which is what, what's the at? It's doc. It's Dr. Period Jess MD. I wasn't lucky enough to get just Doctor Jess. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you've talked a lot about the vaccines, and that's what we are here to talk about today. First, let's get it sort of straight. I'm asking all the doctors I interview this question: How are mRNA vaccines? How do they work, and how are they different from traditional vaccines that have been given before? So traditional vaccines work through DNA, and this one is the first messenger RNA. Messenger RNA is, mm, if you were to use an analogy, it's kind of like downloading a whole DOS operating system. It's what tells your genes to make certain proteins. It's the transcript, if you will. Um, And the other vaccines that we've had out in circulation, you know, since the 50s, 60s have been um, vaccines that tell our DNA to do certain things. So this is a different type of vaccine, although they say a copy. Does that sound right? Like you're making a copy of the original work? Yes, exactly. And it's telling this particular vaccine, messenger RNA vaccine, is telling our body to make certain antibodies to a part of the virus. So whenever we see the virus, it won't catch us off guard. We will already have antibodies made against what's known as the spike protein of the virus. Mm-hmm. There's some rumors on social media, a lot of it does get deleted, that it is changing the function of your DNA. Is this something that you believe? I actually don't believe that. Um, there is, there's a lot of, um, you know, misinformation out there. And I really want to um, be a voice of reason, um, more so than being gung-ho one way or the other. I really want to stay in the gray middle ground because none of us really know. And I think that's the safest answer right now. Um, so, yeah, this is a completely different way this vaccine works. And it's the first time it's been in humans. They say that the technology has been around 10 years, but yeah. this is really the first time humans have ever gotten to experience this type of coding and messenger RNA in a vaccine. So you said earlier that you're trying to conceive now. So, mm-hmm. well, what's your decision on this? I, you know, I'm going to be a refuser of the vaccine. Um, I'm not someone who went out and got a yearly flu vaccine unless I was working in the hospital. Um, so I haven't been doing that for many years now. So I am not someone who goes and gets boosters or flu vaccines in general. If you were to t- check my titers, it would be unknown as to whether I have antibodies to probably a number of different diseases, as most people are once they're adults. Um, for me, I am not okay when there's already so much issue with infertility out there. We hear so much about this nowadays, especially with the endocrine disruptors, which are considered pesticides and flame retardants for that matter. So much of that is interfering with our hormones. Um, I don't want to take a chance to take a vaccine that may lessen my severity of getting COVID, but then present problems later on with um, my immune system or something that we didn't even see coming because really generally the pharmaceutical industry has a history of messing up and getting sued and recalling and recanting products. Yes. I heard about this from another doctor I was talking to. Um, And those are things that they don't discover until, you know, six or seven years down the road since it's been out. 
Well, you know, they'll tell you something different, Ashley. They'll tell you, you know, if you're talking to Dr. Fauci or someone, they'll tell you, hey, all vaccine reactions happen within two to six weeks. And I, in my professional opinion, feel differently about that. I feel that that's really jumping the gun to say something so black and white definitively that something happens that quickly. We have a huge rise in autoimmunity and other neurodegenerative neurodegenerative conditions in this country. And to say that we can just rule that out immediately, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. Let's talk about miscarriages in the vaccine. So the initial data was showing that there in the months of the vaccine being out, that there were more miscarriages, like quadruple the amount, triple the amount, something like that. But then you do the math and you're like, oh, that's because so many people are getting the vaccine and so many people have miscarriage, like one in four get miscarriages. So do you really see a correlation between the vaccine and miscarriages? Or do you think that people are just like not taking into consideration that so many women have miscarriages in the first trimester? So hard. There's so many different confounding factors here. You know, I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. You know, when we're introducing an experimental procedure into someone, and for those people who say it's not experimental, it absolutely is. Uh-huh. It's only, um, you know, we only have about six, eight months of data, and they unblinded the placebo group six months in, so we have nothing to compare it to now. So this is absolutely experimental. And if you look at a lot of the studies, the way they um, say it is the the va- vaccine surveillance reports and VAERS, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting Surveillance, system, we've gone over the New England Journal of Medicine published a study that said, hey, we've gone over all this reporting. We've looked at VAERS and we've determined it's safe based on that. On the studies that we we have looked at pregnant women who've already gotten it, it looks safe based on that. So you guys really were the, the experimental group. You really were. They're now saying it looks safe for pregnant women based on the pregnant women who went out and got it done first. So this is all experimental. We're learning as we go. Please look at the studies that have come out and how they're reporting safety measures here no one really knows right okay so then there's been all this talk about period changes and this is actually getting a lot of traction in mainstream media i saw even like nbc news and health magazine are reporting on it women are reporting either really long periods or really heavy periods the month or two after getting the vaccine. What is up? And is that a symptom of COVID itself? And that's just like when you get the shot, it's kind of like getting COVID. So you're going to get a heavy, heavy period. What's going on there? This is a great question. Again, I'm not sure anyone knows for sure. So they, what mainstream medicine tells you, and you guys may hear, the, hear this parroted out in the media, is if the vaccine is causing it, likely the wild-type virus will be right. causing the same symptoms, right? Because they're similar. We're activating similar parts of the virus or mimicking it when we're getting the vaccine, right? So, um, yeah, this has been a hot button, a hot topic, is what's happening with our periods. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm like clock work and I was a week late. Really? So, but yes. wait, but you, cause you had, did you have COVID or you? No, I went to see my hairdresser who'd recently had the first dose. The first so you're dose. believing in shedding, which kind of takes this theory one step further. I can't say that because this would be very anti-scientific for me to say something like this, that this vaccine that's not a live vaccine sheds. That's really a big conspiracy that's out there right now. And I just feel safer saying I don't know. You know, there are some fine print in the Pfizer and Moderna about um, self-sharing vaccines. 
and about how there's self-transmission of vaccines and sharing of vaccines. It's in the fine print. So, you know, we don't really know what's happening here exactly. Um, You know, it's not live. It shouldn't be able to shed. But again, we've never really had a messenger RNA vaccine with a lipid nanoparticle around it. We don't really know how nanoparticles leave the body. We don't really know the proprietary blend that's exactly in that. So without knowing all that, it's really hard to tell you 100% what's going on with women's cycles? You know, I don't even know if the vaccine manufacturers know. Are you normally very regular? Yes. 100% like clockwork. Huh. I mean, 20 days. Yeah. I never, I mean, I didn't have any pain. I never have PMS. I might be a little moody, but I don't have any pain. I don't get really headaches. I don't have any of that stuff. And that was the same. But I was exactly six days late, which is extremely rare for me. And that's what I've heard a lot of women say is they've been kind of early or late or they've had these horrible like period pain, cycle pain, um, which is unusual for some of them. Now, whether this is coincidence or not, and everyone's just talking about it, I'm unsure. Um, But I don't know. I think it would also be anti-scientific to say, no, absolutely not. This vaccine can't shed when it's a new vaccine and no one's for sure. Has there been other vaccines that have had a passive shedding? Only the live ones like MMR, right? Um, Polio, things like this in the past that were active do have a history of shedding. Um, Diphtheria, for example, um, or excuse me, pertussis, for example, um, has a history of actually shedding and you can get the live virus from the vaccine actually from shedding of the vaccine Um, yeah so it's usually it's very well steeped in the literature that if someone has a live vaccine that's absolutely possibility this would be something completely new and um, not steeped in the science if something like this was happening so just to clarify for the audience shedding is kind of like when you're around somebody who's had the vaccine, and then you get side effects from just being around them. Correct. Or, you know, you can actually get sick. You can actually catch the virus or bacteria, whatever you've been vaccinated for. It's usually a virus. You can actually catch it um, from someone who's been vaccinated, Mm -hmm. and they're not showing symptoms because the vaccine has protected them from that, but they still have asymptomatic replication of the live virus and then shedding from that virus replication to others who are not protected that they then can get sick. So that actually live viral shedding from a vaccine is a way to pass on the virus. Can you speak to the fact that the vaccine is not FDA approved yet? This is actually under emergency authorization use, which means because there's been declared a pandemic and there is now emergency use authorization approved during that pandemic emergency. So that's the only way they're actually able to approve this vaccine. If you look at Moderna and Pfizer's fine print, it is gene therapy, and they would never be able to have this in the public being pushed the way it is if it wasn't for this emergency authorization use. Um, And this is actually the biggest public service announcement campaign at $52 million that they're spending right now. Um, So biggest ad campaign in history. Is the government allowed to put the, the ads out or does it have to go through private companies? 
It's definitely been, there's been a lot of donations from private companies as well. So a lot of the nonprofits, this is the way they do it. It's the first time we've really quarantined and masked healthy people in history. Usually we quarantine and keep the ill out of the public. So this is really the first time that we've gone this route. Um, And so it's sort of new ground for everyone. And it's more, for me, it's about, um, you know, really making sure things are safe. And because I know the history of the FDA, the history of Pfizer, the history of all the pharmaceutical industries that have been slapped on the wrist almost every year with million-dollar lawsuits by deceiving or lying to the public. And Johnson & Johnson knew about their baby powder causing cervical cancer and still continued. So because I know the history of some of these companies, I know their hands aren't clean, and I really am just not going to volunteer to be a guinea pig um, for I trust my immune system, uh, my mitochondrial health, and my metabolic health is great, and I know that 8% of the human genome is made up of viruses. My whole microbiome is bacteria. So really, um, these, these pathogens serve a role in training your immune system. And so if I'm supposed to get it, I believe that is the way God intended, and that will help train my immune system and actually be better for me than anything man-made. So for me, it comes down to trusting nature and God over something that man makes. Speaking of that, a lot of doctors are saying that the benefits outweigh the risks when it comes to pregnant women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, what's your take on that first? You know, um, I think that they, you know, when you're in the hospital, you see the worst of the worst sick people. You see the outliers who come in the sickest disease, the sickest metabolic health and chronic illness. And so I think they see a lot of horror stories in the hospital, just like I used to. Um, And not that there isn't a very dangerous virus out there. And you guys know your body best and how you react to things and what is best for you. And I just advocate for you to have the ability to choose. For me, however, um, it's, I think that doctors have absolutely been brainwashed. They've been taught by pharmaceutical companies to write our textbooks. They've been taught uh, all vaccines are good, safe, and effective without questioning anything. They have never looked at a, a vaccine package insert. Most of them ha- can't even tell you what's in them. I talked to a doctor the other day who couldn't remember what PEG stood for, who polyethylene glycol, that's the adjuvant inside the messenger RNA vaccine. Um, these doctors don't even know what's in vaccines and are preaching to you that they're safe and effective. So before you just listen to all these doctors, you should question how much they know about vaccine history, pharmaceutical industry, and exactly what ingredients come on a package insert insert in a vaccine. If they have done their due diligence, they'll know the good, the bad, and ugly rather than just preaching to you about one-sided agenda. And most of the doctors only see a one-sided agenda. So therefore, I like to show you the good, the bad, and the ugly so that you can make an informed decision without making it for you. And I feel like most of the doctors are making it for their patients. I don't think the benefit outweighs the risk. And actually, the New England Journal came out and said, hey, we, we kind of recommend them based on these surveillance data. We've just been kind of watching you guinea pigs take the vaccine, and it looks safe. That's what the, vac- that's what the, the study said, guys, and that's what the doctors are parroting. Okay, so let's actually talk about the reporting of side effects and such with there's a v-safe registration and then there's VARES. so you touched on VARES a little bit earlier VARES is where people the like the people who took the vaccine can go in there and just talk about what they experienced right they can just kind of report side effects they can basically it's a it's a wild wild west any sort of reporting can go on there and it's not been vetted or researched right so it's all taken with a grain of salt on VARES. But with V-safe, that how is that any different? The, this is 
people when people get the vaccine, they're asked to sign up for this. Is it just for pregnant women? Is there a whole different section for pregnant women? I think it's just for everyone. Um, this is people who have side effects. If you have side effects from the vaccine, you can report it to VAERS and then be safe. These are people from um, the vaccine companies who call and make sure you're doing okay if you are having side effects. And they're actually, you know, keeping track and putting you in a registry and tracking those symptoms as well. Okay. Yeah. So do you believe that most side effects, people who are having significant side effects, are reporting this? Do you think that there's an underreporting? Definitely. I think there was Harvard came out with a study a few years back that said 1% of vaccine reactions are reported, 1%. So all these doctors are like, oh, they'd be reported. I mean, I was in hospitals for six years. I didn't even know VAERS existed. I didn't even know until I got in the holistic world. I mean, doctors don't even know where to report. Patients don't even know where to report. I was an MD, had no idea VAERS existed when I was a hospitalist. So I'm a testament to that fact. I know that they're not reported. Um, I believe it's 1%, absolutely. And so if you go on VAERS, you'll see thousands of reports linked to the COVID-19 vaccination. Um, if you look at the New England Journal of Medicine recommendation for pregnant women, it says, hey, it looks like all these thousands of reports on VAERS aren't really linked. So just ignore them. Are there other countries who are not suggesting that they're women who are trying to conceive and get pregnant take it? I read something in passing. I couldn't really find much on it about Denmark saying that women should not be getting it who, who are uh, planning to be childbearing soon. You know, I don't know the answer to that. That wouldn't surprise me if the Netherlands, Denmark, those countries up there were saying things like that. That definitely wouldn't surprise me. Out of all the countries, I would probably guess somewhere like that that says, hey, let's be weary of this. Because if you guys notice, there's not, when they did the Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson Johnson, when they did all those studies, they didn't include anyone 18 and younger, and they didn't include the elderly people. They didn't include people with comorbidities like autoimmune conditions, which is most of the population, and they didn't look at pregnant women. None of those. So when they tell you it's safe for pregnant women, please keep in mind that their study was never done. This is assumed through looking at surveillance data. I need you guys to understand that. So the other countries that are saying they're not safe, they're erring on the side of caution like me and saying, why would you put foreign substances? that have never been in a human before right now, are we that afraid of a virus when our genome is 8% viral? Right. And I do believe that the UK, their recommendation is a little bit different than ours. It says that they only recommend women who are at high risk of exposure and can't avoid, Mm -hmm. um, they can't avoid exposure, like they can't like work from home. Um, and if they don't have underlying conditions, they shouldn't be getting it. Or at least that's kind of what their wording sounds like versus here in America, which is like all women just get it. Yeah. And, you know, that's my that's my issue with America. They're always just pushing things on us and saying it's safe. But yet the population continues to get sicker with worse, you know, um, rates of, you know, uh, stillborn death and, and newborn death on mortality rates on birth. You know, so there are things there are things that don't add up that they're saying are safe. Well, where why is everyone getting sick? Why is autism rising? Why is autoimmunity rising? Why is cancer rising if we're this great country and doing everything? right? You need to start asking questions. And what's lovely that we're naive and we believe the powers that be, but not everyone is out to help us all the time. It's about money. I'll ask you these questions that I asked um, the other couple doctors. If you were, if a woman was definitely set on getting it, do you feel like there's a part of her cycle that it would be the safest? Hmm. That's a really thoughtful question. Um, 
You know, I don't know if it would be safer during any part of the cycle or not necessarily. I would say that, you know, I've seen a lot of problems with estrogen disruption. So maybe the second half of the cycle, but that's just a wild guess. Honestly, I I don't know if it matters at all. Okay. And then have you noticed at all like sperm count being affected by the vaccine or just by COVID itself? You know, um, if it's affected by COVID, it definitely has a chance to be affected by the vaccine for sure. Those two sort of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there was some question about whether some of the amino acids crossed over from the syncytium and the placenta to the vaccine and whether that was causing miscarriages or not. As far as like low sperm count, um, possibly, because what we think COVID long haulers does is wipes out the mitochondria, which makes people really fatigued and, you know, autoimmunity type symptoms. And so, you know, you, you have a lot of mitochondria in the Leydig cells, which make the sperm. Um, and you have a lot in your ovaries as women. And so if mitochondria are, are little powerhouses that make all our cellular energy, if they start to get worn out, you are going to have trouble with sperm motility and numbers for sure. So I can see how a vaccine and getting long haulers COVID both could affect that. I guess, is there anything else that you think that is, is important for the audience to know? Yeah, you know, guys, I definitely don't want to come off here and have all you guys think, what a crazy doctor, anti-vaxxer. You know, we don't need to use divisive terms. We need unity at this time because we're already so divided. And so if we can find common ground here, we're all looking to protect our children. We're all looking to have healthy bodies to deliver healthy babies, right? That's what all of us are looking for with common ground here. And so I am not the end-all, be-all, neither is anyone else. None of us know for sure. But if you trust God and your body and whatever you call God, nature, whatever that is, understand that everything is in perfect harmony all the time. And your body is the most amazing vessel that nothing man made can compete with. It's smarter than anyone, any doctor out there. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Hopefully this was helpful for your audience. You can find Dr. Petros at at Dr. Jess MD, that is Dr. D-R period Jess period MD on Instagram. Before we get our last doctor on, I want to talk to you guys about something else that pertains to females, to women, um, you know, especially to those trying to conceive, uh, people who are pregnant. You know why? Because we've been having sex, right? And sometimes you need a little something, something to get you ready for baby making, especially when you do it day after day. And that is why we at the I Don't Get It podcast love Femtasy. It is a streaming platform with short erotic audio stories. And these stories are ethically produced and they're especially designed to satisfy the female desire and provide pleasure. There are steamy fantasies that are narrated by both men and women, and they're audio only, so there's no M- images, and it stimulates your imagination. And you know what they say about women we fall in love and get turned on through our ears, not always through our eyes. So, this, this is imagination stimulating, which I like, and that could be really important for us. These central stories can help you explore your sexuality and bring the most intimate fantasies to life. Think of fantasy like a sexy voice note that you got sent from a hot date. 
What Femtasy wants to do is inspire and encourage women to embrace their sexuality by exploring their most intimate desires. They support women to not only enjoy their fantasies, but lead a self-determined life under the duvet and all walks of life. And it's a safe space, guys. If you're trying to figure out if there's something that you like and you're kind of wanting to test it out with their community, you can discover new things in a safe place. So listen to over 500 audios exclusively for you to connect with yourself and to make the connection more intense. All you got to do is go to www.femtasy.com and use the discount code GETIT, G-E-T-I-T, and you can save 25% on their annual subscription. Again, use the code GETIT, G-E-T-I-T, and you'll get 25% off an annual subscription so you can love yourself all year long, anytime. It's www.femtasy.com. Our last guest is Dr. Natalie Crawford. Dr. Crawford is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive and chronology and infertility. She's the Director of Patient Experience and Education, as well as the co-founder of Fora Fertility, a boutique fertility practice in Austin, Texas. Dr. Crawford is also a clinical assistant professor of women's health at the University of Texas at Austin's Dell Medical School. Okay, so I'm asking all the doctors similar questions, and I'm just seeing if there's different answers from all of them. So can you please explain how the mRNA vaccines are the first of its kind and how we can trust the safety of it if it's not, if it hasn't been used until now? It has been used, and mRNA vaccine technology was first developed in the 1990s. It's been used for previous diseases like Ebola is a great example. And so this is not a brand new technology for us. It is just a brand new rollout of this size, especially in this country. Now, what that should make us feel is that one rumor going around is that this is brand new. Scientists just created this technology last year. And so how do we know anything about it? Mm -hmm. I think the idea that it's been around for, you know, gosh, 20 plus years should give some comfort to the fact that it's been studied extensively. How we were able to get it out so much quicker in this setting is that there was a lot of funding and a lot of emphasis on trying to get a vaccine so that we can get life back as normal. And so this has been a faster process, but that's because there's more money behind it. Normally, people don't feel like putting their money behind science. And so those of us in the scientific community have been happy for that. mRNA is messenger RNA. Messenger RNA tells your body to make a protein. The protein that the body is making in this case is the antibody against COVID, which is an antibody to the spike protein because that's a unique part of COVID versus other parts. So that way your body can be protected against COVID specifically. It does not get into the cell nucleus. It does not incorporate into your DNA. The end, period. That's not how mRNA works. If you took biology in high school, which most of us did, we learned this. We just forgot about it. mRNA is the message. It tells us to translate the message into proteins, Mm -hmm. and the protein is the antibody. So people who are telling anybody, 
you're changing your DNA, it's going to get in your cells, you're giving yourself the virus. Absolutely false for this technology. So it is that's reassuring. And there's all kinds of vaccines, they all get lumped together, they work differently. And so this should make us feel more comfortable if that fact made somebody scared about changing their DNA or having a DNA altering vaccine or that they would be giving themselves a piece of the COVID virus. That's not what's happening with mRNA technology. And so that's why it's pretty impressive to most of us who are science nerds in the field. So do do any vaccines change your DNA? So some vaccines are actually giving you part of the virus, right? So right. that is like live virus vaccines. Mm-hmm. So a good example is varicella, the chickenpox vaccine. And so that's actually giving you a piece of the vaccine itself or the virus itself. And then as part of the body's response, it teaches the body to recognize that virus in case you see it again. But we are not currently giving technology to alter DNA in any way. That's not something that we are doing. How do the two mRNA vaccines differ from the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca, which are both not mRNA? That's a good question. So the others use what's called a viral vector. And so you put a message inside a piece of a different virus. And so in this one, it's adenovirus, which is a common virus, to kind of create the same response as far as teaching the body to respond to it. You're still not giving somebody a piece of covid but it is a different immune reaction. And so that's why we're seeing a different set of symptoms and side effects and why the entire you need two of it versus you just need it once is going on. As an OBGYN, do you recommend one over the other? So the CDC is currently recommending that if you get to choose, if you were going to the vaccine store and you got to choose a vaccine for women who are age 50 and younger, so reproductive age women, an mRNA vaccine is preferred if you get the choice. It doesn't mean that the J&J vaccine is unsafe. It just means we're all aware now there was a pause in the distribution of the J&J vaccine. And that is because vaccine reporting works. So it was bringing to light, there may be cause for concern. A very, very rare but serious outcome was occurring with a thrombosis in the cerebral sinus system. So a brain clot, which is a very serious thing and everybody took it seriously. As they're still exploring that connection, is it because women were also on birth control pills or reproductive age or what was the correlation? It is preferred that if you get a choice, you should at least know that there are different ones and the mRNA vaccines have not been associated with that outcome. So if I had a reproductive age woman going to the vaccine store and you could choose, I'd pick an mRNA. But if you are in a place where the only thing available to you is a J&J, that's still a much better option than getting COVID, especially with reproductive outcomes in pregnancy, long-haul syndrome, like symptoms, there are, you know, definitely consequences besides just death that happen with COVID. It's the blood clots, right? That you would say the mRNA versus versus the Johnson & Johnson, but why is it, why is it just affecting women, the blood clots, or at least the instances that we have? You know, blood clots overall impact women more than men. Um, estrogen itself, which is naturally present in our bodies, is a natural coagulant. Like it helps, it makes clotting happen more frequently. And so most of us have also heard about, oh, if you have a tendency to blood clots or they run in your family, you shouldn't take external estrogen sources like the pill. But women, if we took all blood clots in the world, a huge proportion of them are going to be women over men anyway. So it's just looking at the 
the type of side effect it is. And that's why it's impacting women more. Let's go and talk about statistics and such now, because there's so much floating around the internet saying that miscarriages are on the rise with the rise of people taking COVID shots. And it's just, there's one in four women have a miscarriage. And I think people aren't taking that into consideration. Completely. So I, I understand this concern. I'm a fertility doctor. I deal with fertility every day. I had miscarriages myself. So if somebody was to tell me this is going to cause a miscarriage or this is going to cause infertility, I understand why people are getting fearful of this. Miscarriages, you said it exactly right, are going to occur in about one in four women. So if we take all the women who are trying to get pregnant, we know flat out that we're going to have at least one in four have a miscarriage that's even recognized, right? And so it's easy to find things that you know may happen. And if you, I've suffered a miscarriage. So like I look back in my history every time I had one, did I, what did I do? Did I cause this? What happened? How can I prevent that from happening again? Natural, normal reaction. But that doesn't necessarily mean things are associated. So the way to look at this is when you look at the V-safe data that's been reported in over 35,000 pregnant women, and you look at the miscarriage rate in people who did not get the COVID vaccine and people who got the COVID vaccine, there's no increase in miscarriage. There's no increase in stillbirth. The rate is exactly the same as the population-based rate. In fact, it's even a little bit lower, which is just showing you the randomness of it. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Clinically, I see pregnant patients all the day. All my fertility patients are getting the vaccine. We're talking extensively about it. And I should, if that were a true fact, see an uptick in miscarriage in my own practice. I should see infertility in my own practice. I should see failure of embryo transfer after my patients are getting the vaccine and going through IVF, right? If it was causing mass sterilization, none of my patients who got the vaccine should be able to get pregnant, but I'm graduating them. They're going on to their OBs. They are carrying on. We've seen no change in our internal statistics, and we track those really tightly because that's what we do for a living. And so our even clinical data from one fertility clinic, which is a very small thing, is extremely consistent with what the CDC reporting data is. So we have to remember that observational data, my cousin's sister said, I know somebody who had, those stories are just a N of one, a number of one. And that doesn't give us very much power. And you can find casual associations when you look at data like that. And that's why those of us in the scientific world, when we look at data on big platforms, the more people you have in the study, the more power it has to show a true association and not just a casual kind of coincidence or something that we call confounding. So that's just more of a coincidence in some of these women that are going to have miscarriages anyway. And we 
I would have no problem telling my patients not to get it if it was going to cause a miscarriage. My goal is to get them pregnant, not to get them vaccinated. That has nothing to do with what I do on a daily basis. But yet we are telling our patients to get the vaccine because we know that getting COVID in the pregnancy, even mild cases, can have a higher risk of high blood pressure pregnancy, preterm birth, C-section, ICU admission, intubation, death of mom and baby, all showing us in study after study that a pregnant woman who gets COVID has these outcomes. So I talk to every patient, are you prepared to live like it's April, 2020 and not go anywhere, stay super safe, work from home, not expose yourself to people because getting COVID could lead to those outcomes. Or do you feel comfortable with the vaccine? And almost every patient I have has decided to get the vaccine during their fertility treatments or in the first trimester of pregnancy. Are you worried at all about the side effects that like are COVID-like side effects that you have the first day, especially after getting the second shot? Because like people talk about fever and like, what if you're in your first trimester and you get a bad fever? Is there also like that being said, is there also a best time for somebody trying to conceive or trying or, or pregnant to get it? These are great questions. So I love that question from people because it shows that you're thinking and you're trying to make educated choices. Getting a fever, and we always talk about trying to avoid getting fevers, especially fevers that can't be treated, um, could be bad. So a a good example is if you're in the first trimester and you get actual COVID, you're going to have a prolonged fever for multiple days, and it may not come down with normal antipyretic or medicines like Tylenol. Mm -hmm. When you get the vaccine, all these symptoms and side effects that people have, I got a fever after mine, you take Tylenol and it goes away immediately. And so it's safe to take Tylenol in early pregnancy. The fever is very transient. Those side effects last for less than 24 hours. And that is overall much lower of a risk than if you were to get a COVID infection. Now, many pregnant women get infections and they get sick and they get the flu and they get a sinus infection and they get a fever and we don't see these detrimental outcomes. We don't want your core body temperature persistently elevated for a prolonged period of time. But most of us know when you have a fever, it ebbs and flows and you break the fever. So especially by taking febrile medication. Even the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is one of the societies that takes care of pregnant women, says this fever, we're not worried about. It's very mild and it's very treatable. So that should not be a reason preventing us from getting it. To answer your question, I think that when we're weighing the risk and benefit, the risk of getting COVID when you're pregnant is that you could have a detrimental outcome, you could die, right? The risk of getting COVID vaccine in pregnancy, the only risk consistently shown with multiple, like thousands and thousands of women in studies and reporting over 100,000 women have been reporting into vSafe right now. The only kind of real risk that we are seeing is that you're going to have COVID side effects, just like everybody else, those transient side effects for about 24 hours. And so that shouldn't be something to kind of prevent you. Now, the sooner the vaccine's available to you, the sooner you're going to protect yourself. And so whether you're pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant, sooner is better. Also, data is emerging. It's still new data, but looking at antibodies that are transferred to the baby. So if you get a COVID vaccine, your antibody levels are much higher than natural immunity levels. And I think that's because you're controlling the response a little bit differently because you're giving that messenger signal and telling your body how many antibodies to make. So yay, that's great. Give antibodies passively to your baby so you can protect that baby when it's born. I know all moms want to protect their babies. That's good news. 
it does appear that the earlier in the pregnancy you get the vaccine, the more antibodies are passed on into the baby. And so there's talk about, should I wait till the third trimester? Should I wait till the second trimester? Should I wait till the baby is viable? Should I wait till you know I'm out of the first trimester? And we don't have any reason to be suspicious. There's not even a hypothetical reason why this would cause you know, birth defects or anything to be concerned about in the first trimester. And so when it's available to you, that's the time to get it. Earlier appears to be better for your baby as far as passing those antibodies along to protect the baby. Okay. So no concerns over, well, I mean, the fact that like there hasn't been a baby born that's had the COVID vaccine in the first trimester. So like, we're not a little bit worried. (laughs) Well, I mean, that doesn't mean there haven't been anatomy scans and we look at anatomy all the time in pregnant women, you know? And so birth defects are detected in almost almost all the birth defects we detect are detected in pregnancy now. It's not that babies are born and we, gosh, we're in the woods and we had no idea what was happening. You know, we follow along pregnancies very intense. And so the, remember that a vaccine is not giving you a lot of random stuff. I think there's this fear that it's just giving you weird things. It's giving you a signal to make COVID antibodies. We have lots of babies born from women who had COVID, right? They don't have birth defects. They had the same antibodies going in their system. We saw women who had COVID infection in the first trimester and their babies aren't being born with some weird something going on. That was a big concern for us in the beginning because Zika virus actually does cause that, right? And so we actually shut down IVF for two months because we wanted to feel more comfortable that there wouldn't be birth defects from this virus. And so I understand that argument and I am all for science, right? And I would love a randomized control trial of this versus that, but we're living in a global pandemic and we're trying to protect as many people as possible. And we're trying to protect moms and babies. And so it would not do us any good to go and advocate for something if there was a hypothetical, I mean, you saw all of us OBGYNs go crazy over Zika. You can't travel on that vacation. You can't do this. You have to wait. Like we have no problem advocating against something that's like not fun for people to protect moms and babies. And so this newfound fear, you know, at that time, everybody said we were being too conservative telling you to go do this. And now people think we're being too liberal, you know, recommending the vaccine for all. Our job is to protect moms and babies. And that's what we're trying to do in the best way by looking at the risks and the benefits. So I agree. We don't have millions of babies born after the COVID vaccination, but we do have a lot of pregnant women who got in the first trimester who have progressed on, who did not miscarry, who've had normal anatomy scans. Pregnancies are developing fine and normal. And that is us using our full picture brain instead of just looking at one data point, right? Thinking about what happens in a normal pregnancy and, you know, Any pregnant doctor that you know, no matter if she was one day pregnant or like about to deliver, got the COVID vaccine as soon as she could. We saw this happening all through social media. We saw reports. We saw pregnant women lining up. I'm in Texas and pregnant women got in the highest tier group to get the vaccine here. And so we had pregnant women, you know, I had got their positive pregnancy test and went and got from IVF and went and got their vaccine right away. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that is just, should give us some peace of mind that your OBGYN doctors or your fertility doctors are not out here going rogue, trying to hurt you or trying to harm you or really trying to help people do what is the safest thing for them and their baby. What is up with the period, the period shifts? There's like period irregularities right now being reported. Um, 
people are having very long periods, very heavy periods after getting the vaccine. Any suspicion as to what that could be about? Yeah. So I'm going to do two things now. The vaccine causes your immune system to up a notch, right? We all agree that your body's going to start making antibodies. So your immune system's kicked on. Nobody's really that freaked out about getting a swollen lymph node after getting the vaccine. We're like, oh, that's just a lymph node because my immune system is making antibodies. So the, true. Yeah. So nobody freaks out about that. Um, the endometrium is an immune responsive tissue too. And most people don't think about this. The immune system is key in helping implantation and the placenta grow in probably in levels much greater than a response to a COVID vaccine. But that being said, it appears that we are seeing reports of period changing. I'm going to say changing because it's different. Mm-hmm. What we are seeing is that women are reporting, whether it's a sooner or a longer period or a heavier or a lighter period, but hey, something is up. Mm-hmm. It's not every woman, but it is some. And it's enough that it's unlikely to be a coincidence and it's most likely due to this immune reaction that's happening inside the endometrium or inside the uterus. Now, the data we do have is in women who've gotten COVID infection over the past year, 25% of them had the exact same thing happen. Thank you. So my next question. Yeah. So 25% of women who had COVID said, hey, something's up with my period. It lasted one or two months. And then a period pattern went back to normal, totally back to normal. And so that data makes us think that it's not the vaccine. It's this COVID antibody immune change because getting COVID, your immune system goes up, getting the vaccine, your immune system goes up. So that to me is reassuring data that it's not like, oh, something, they put some crazy thing in the vaccine. This is just the body's natural response to having your immune system turned on is that immune responsive tissues respond and the endometrium is one of them. We are collecting, I mean, I'm not, but we as a scientific community are collecting data on periods with the vaccine. It appears it's going to support the same thing. The other thing to just kind of think about is any intense stressor of your body. I used to always say a pan, like a famine, a pandemic, living in a war, but now we're really living in a pandemic. Very stressful times turn your cortisol levels up and they tell your brain, hey, this is not a good time for Ashley to get pregnant and your brain may start shutting down hormones and you have amenorrhea or absence of periods. That has not been reported after the vaccine. A one or two day stress response is very different than a months long stress response. But there have been some women who've gotten a COVID infection that was severe who said their period stopped completely afterward. And that is more likely to what we see with an actual stress response to the body under such a huge stressor that it's not sure that it can carry a pregnancy right now, which makes sense, right? If you are in the ICU, your body has preoccupied and it's not sure it wants to carry a pregnancy yet. And so it's going to wait to turn your brain back on until it feels more comfortable. The other thing we have data on that we should mention on the same topic is that we have looked, there have been two studies out of China looking at ovarian function of the ovaries with COVID infection. One was COVID infection versus not, and one was three groups, COVID infection, COVID vaccine, and not. Okay. They, these studies do not show a change in your ovarian reserve from the from the vaccine. One suggested it may change a little from COVID itself, but we don't really think that's probably true. 
Either way, because it was not a very significant change. Either way, in these studies, ovarian reserve is how many eggs you have. So the study that looked at vaccine versus COVID versus nothing, you didn't have less eggs if you were in the vaccine group. Your blood markers for how many eggs you have, your AMH looked fine. The other thing is your ovarian function, making hormones and ovulating was not altered from getting the vaccine. And that should also make us feel more reassured. Mm -hmm. So the period thing... I believe it. In science, we we listen to people, what they say, and then we evaluate it, and does it make sense, and what are we seeing? And so I think the period thing is transient. If your period pattern has changed for more than three months, go see a doctor. There can be true, true, unrelated reproductive age women who are having periods. That's also the age we get diagnosed with PCOS, endometriosis, thyroid disease, pituitary disease. So it could be another true, true, unrelated. If you have a change that doesn't go back to normal, then you should go get medical attention and make sure there's not something else that's happening at the same time. Okay. So then with those trying to conceive like me, is there a certain part of the month that you would get the vaccine so you don't have to worry per se about your period changing? Or am I just looking way too into it and you can just be like, you know what, you may have to skip a month. I, I have gotten asked this question a lot too, and I am not going... As, as a woman who had infertility, every month matters. And I totally understand that feeling. That being said, there are things we can control and things we can't control. Likely the incidence of period changing is going to come out to be similar to what we saw with COVID infection. So not everybody. So would I tell people to like try to schedule this vaccine around a certain time? We don't really know when a better time would be. You know, we don't really know what would be best. So I'm sticking to Get the vaccine as soon as you can. If you're trying to get pregnant, don't change behavior. Still have unprotected sex. Many reports of women conceiving or getting their positive test right after they got a vaccine. So just keep on carrying on. Um, If you get a wonky period, I wouldn't freak majorly out about it. I'd say, oh, I got a weird period. That was probably just do the vaccine. We're going to keep on trying. If you're undergoing fertility treatments, because that's a different ball game than trying to get pregnant naturally, right? If you're paying for IVF, if I'm controlling the calendar of when we do things and not your body, then we do it a little bit differently. So my patients are instructed to tell me, you know, hey, I got on the list, I have a vaccine appointment, and then we're looking to make sure that that's not occurring, you know, right around implantation for a couple different reasons. One is that you can't come into my clinic if you have a fever right? So if you got the vaccine two days ago and you're supposed to come in and get an embryo transfer and now you have a fever, now your procedure can't happen. So number one is just making sure we're not canceling procedures on patients. Number two is that we don't know if the body is already an immune response as making the antibodies. Will, Will that change implantation as far as asking an early embryo to implant? We don't have any data for that, but again, when you're paying lots of money and you're scheduling things and we can move things, we are moving things. So the current recommendation is if it's a procedure for a fertility to not get a vaccine within three days before or after. So it's not a prolonged period of time, but just a few day shift. Gotcha. Okay. There's lots of internet rumors about shedding. Uh, can you explain like, what shedding is and why no. it's taking off so much? It's, well, I mean, it's fake. So, I mean, that's why it's taken off because currently we love to sensationalize health. Shedding is the idea that I could get a vaccine and now I'm shedding viral particles and causing miscarriage or infertility or weird things around people I'm around. Mm-hmm. 
you can shed virus, certain viruses you can shed, right? You can get infected and you can be around somebody and then you can shed the virus. Let's think of a good one like COVID virus. Okay, it's so you get contagious. It's contagious, right? So because in your body, when you go and you cough and you have COVID, you're putting little COVID particles in the air. I think we can all understand that idea. The vaccine is not giving you virus. You have no virus in your body. There is no virus. You are making antibodies. So even if antibodies could be shared through the air, which would be very cool and not proven to actually be the case, you wouldn't be harming anybody with this. So one, the vaccine doesn't cause miscarriage or infertility. There is no shedding that happens after an mRNA vaccine or any vaccine that's not giving you an actual virus. So this is not a live virus vaccine. There's no worry that you are shedding it off. There are live virus vaccines out there, as we already said. There are different circumstances if you have a live virus in your body about should you be around certain at-risk people. Mm -hmm. That's not what this is. And so I don't know why we are taking apples and oranges and getting everything confused. And we are using women's health, not just health. We are using women's health as a political tool to spread fear. And to me, none of this is political. This is why we go into science because it's like facts. You know, it's not opinions, it's facts. There's no virus to shed. There is no shedding. Anybody can get a vaccine and you don't, if you do not believe or want to get a vaccine, you don't need to be fearful about being around your vaccinated friends. Getting the vaccine has shown to have a lower transmission rate. You know, there was fear about asymptomatic spread or could you be a carrier and other things. And we aren't seeing any of that. So shedding is not a real thing. It's probably my least liked of all the myths that are out there because it's so it's so made up that it's ridiculous there's bears which is where people can report their their side effects are there enough side effect reporting for us to feel good about all the people being injected that's a good question i think we should always ask about our reporting systems and we should always want to know if they are in check because we're reporting that data and we're trusting it we shut down administration of an entire vaccine because of, you know, six or seven people having an adverse consequence. So you should think about of the millions, you know, six million plus vaccines that had been given, the vaccine reporting system was able to detect a connection between just six, right? And so that number is so low, right? Like finding needles in the haystack that gives me more confidence in our vaccine reporting, right? So whether, you know, what that means to us is that the people who are looking at the data are looking for any correlation between these things. And if something looks alarming, they're going to say stop so that we can investigate this further. I think that's the best example of the vaccine reporting on, on a good thing. The other thing is it's publicly accessible. Actually, you could go to the CDC right now. You can search for any side effect or symptom you want associated with any of the COVID vaccines. You can search based on type, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. You can look at any little thing and you have data at your fingertips. So this isn't something that scientists are just hoarding to themselves and it's not publicly accessed or that there's a way to manipulate it. You could go get it yourself and look at it. And so is the data being looked at to make decisions. I think the J&J vaccine is telling us yes, because a pause, a huge change happened from a very, very rare outcome. And even though that outcome sounds very scary, 
that action that was taken from it should make us feel good about it. And then the fact that nobody's hiding the data, it's publicly accessible on a website. You can run a report and get the latest numbers for how many people have entered data, how many pregnant women there are, what their side effects are. That's also showing transparency. So I am happy with how the data is being reported that so many people know about it and know where to go. And I think the vaccine reporting is working as far as tracking these side effects. Is there anything you want to add? Any more crazy internet rumors you think are spreading? Anything you want my audience to feel better about? I think we always have to evaluate our sources of information because we it's normal to hear something that is alarming and to want to make sure you're not putting yourself or your future fertility or your baby in harm's way. And I think we all respect that. Who is giving you this information and what are their credentials to do so? And that's one important question to ask. I think the second is to understand, do make the choice for you. I, you don't have to come at other people and I'm getting so much hate for talking about the vaccine, but I'm not forcing anybody to get the vaccine. It's your choice. So for you, Ashley, it's, it's your choice. You choose to get the vaccine or not. What I am challenging you to do is understand the data that's out there. And if something sounds crazy, crazy like this vaccine shedding is going to cause you to go be infertile, it doesn't even make sense. So what does that mean? And research that. Go to trusted sources. How can you find information about that? Question things that don't make sense so that you can make the decision that is best for you and for your future fertility and for your family. And know that those of us who are out here, I'm not getting paid a dime to come and talk about the vaccine. Again, my job on a day-to-day basis is to get people pregnant and to help them have healthy babies so that they can have this dream fulfilled. I stopped IVF for two months when COVID came out, right? Like that was a very scary time for all of us. We saw a lot of people's family building dreams put on hold. I started a new practice in the middle of a pandemic and we started doing new cycles and we've taken COVID very, very seriously. Everybody who works in our office has gotten the vaccine. We, almost all of our patients end up getting the vaccine because our job is to help you make educated choices and to answer your questions. And if you're a doctor, ask your doctor. So if you have a doctor and you're curious about these, go to somebody who you trust with your health and see what they say and ask them questions. Mm-hmm. That, that sort of is another thing that I think should be pointed out. Doctors aren't paid to be advocates for the vaccine. No, I I hear that. I mean, I'm getting that feedback a lot. Oh, how much is pharma paying you? Like zero dollars. First of all, do you pay any money when you go get the vaccine? No, this vaccine is completely free to anybody who wants it. The vaccine companies are not paying anybody to be spokespeople for them. We are just trying to promote. We, We went into this field, most of us, because we care about people and we care about public health and we want what's best for our patients. And education of the public especially for your doctors who are on social media, it's one of our top priorities. That's why we spend time there. And so it does kind of blow my mind how this has become such a controversial topic, getting vaccinated, when in reality, it's a monumental science breakthrough that in a pandemic to be able to get a vaccine out that is this effective, it's a very effective vaccine to the masses in a quick timeline is really a breakthrough of modern medicine. And it's, it's really speaking towards, um, you know, the prioritization of allowing people to get back to life as normal and to laugh that kind of 
in the face of it, it's really sad. And it's taking away from this moment that we should all be coming together. You know, in any movie where there's some weird virus that goes around and turns people into zombies, when the vaccine comes out, people are waiting hours and hours in line and everybody's celebrating. And it's this monumental moment of coming together as a country in order to be able to get back to life as normal. And I'm sad that we don't have that. And I'm sad that this has been a controversial issue because the reality is we're not getting paid. We want what's best for you. We're just here to give you facts so that you can make the choice for what that is. Thank you so much. You're fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find Dr. Crawford on Instagram at at Natalie Crawford, MD. You can listen to her podcast as a woman and check out her YouTube videos about women's health at Natalie Crawford, MD on YouTube. Well, I found all the conversations with these four doctors to be informative. It was my conversation with Dr. Crawford and speaking with my own OBGYN that led me to the decision to get the COVID-19 vaccine. I think only you should decide what goes into your body, and I hope this podcast helps you make the best decision for you. If you want to be the most interesting person at the cocktail party, well, hop on over and listen to the Brain Candy Podcast. Our award-winning content will have you laughing while you're learning. We read all the best articles, books, and studies, and keep up with new TV shows, documentaries, and pop culture. And then we cram it all into two shows a week. Conspiracy theories, cannibal rabbits, unsolved mysteries, the history of the Walkman. There's something for everyone. The Brain Candy Podcast. Find our link in the show notes. Or simply search for the Brain Candy Podcast on your podcast app. I don't get it. Podcast.